You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. There are few names as synonymous with modern American menswear as Todd Snyder. Since launching his namesake label in 2011 in New York City, Todd Snyder's clothes reflect the company's commitment to the belief that well-made, perfectly fitted clothes make the man. He resides on the cutting edge of fashion retail and is always looking for unexpected ways to push creative boundaries as seen through innovative capsule collections and limited edition designs with brands including Champion, L.L. Bean, New Balance, Timex, and Clarks, just to name a few. Snyder, who was recognized four times by the CFDA as a Menswear Designer of the Year nominee and was a CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund finalist, served as the head of menswear for J. Crew before launching his own brand. He has also worked for Polo, Ralph Lauren, and The Gap. American Eagle purchased the Todd Snyder clothing brand and Snyder's tailgate brand of vintage-inspired collegiate sportswear for $11 million in 2015. He currently operates four stores, including two in Manhattan and others in East Hampton, New York, and Greenwich, Connecticut. He plans to open a store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in April. Welcome to the luxury item, Todd. Great to be here, Scott. Yeah, thank you for joining me. You know, you've really been on a retail rollout tear these days. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. It's always kind of one of those things that you're a little bit trepidatious just because of the nature of retail. But at the same time, it's super exciting. You know, I recently read that you will be awarded a Distinguished Achievement Award and an Honorary Doctorate of Commercial Science degree from LIM College during its commitment ceremonies in May. And you're also going to deliver the keynote speech to the 2022 graduating class at that event. You know, you've built quite an empire since launching your brand a little over a decade ago. What have you learned in that time about being a creative and an entrepreneur? Well, I think like anything, um, you know, experience is key. Uh, I've been in the industry close to 30 years now. And when I started, uh, I had 20 years experience working in various brands, you know, between Ralph and J. Crew and Gap. And I really you know, really tried to surround myself with great people. I think that's the biggest, um, you know, secret to my success is just making sure that I've always been attracted uh, to people that are um, great in their own space. You know, I'm obviously a designer, but I know that for me to be great, I need to have people that, you know, are, are good in business, that are good in um, production that are good in marketing. And really, I kind of spend most of my time trying to figure out, you know, who are the people that I want to surround myself with. And, and that's really kind of been my secret. But then the second piece of it is just making sure that I'm always uh, being inspired, you know, by design and making sure that I'm always kind of pushing forward. Um, and as you may recall, I've done a few collabs um, mm -hmm. since I started. And that really kind of gave the brand awareness. And really, in a cool way for me, it was very interesting to be able to play in someone else's sandbox. But the real benefit of doing collabs is really getting your name out there to people that may not know who you are. They know who L.O. Bean is. They know who you know, Champion is, but they may not know who Todd Snyder is. So I kind of combine, you know, that with 
making sure I'm always surrounding myself with great people. And, and that's really kind of how I, I have been successful. Any particular milestones stick out in your mind over the last decade? I mean, all of it's been amazing. Um, I would say, you know, right out of the gate, when I started my collection and I started selling, um, you know, we were exclusive at Bergdorf's and Neiman's. And that to me was just magical. You know, yeah. what a what a great compliment. And then the same year, um, we were nominated for a CFDA uh, award. And it's just been, it's been great. You know, I really um, have been blessed to know a lot of people in the industry and it's really paid back in spades. You know, before you struck out on your own, you were head of menswear at J. Crew, where you introduced many of the retailers' popular collaborations with the Heritage Menswear labels. And you were also responsible for creating the J. Crew liquor store in New York City. How has designing for the modern American male changed since you were at J. Crew in the late 2000s? Um, it's changed quite a bit. I mean, there was definitely, um, when I was at J. Crew, you know, I was there for five years between 2000. Um, four and 2009 and you know, there was a renaissance happening in menswear at the time and um you know all of a sudden guys wanted to wear alden shoes all, all right. of a sudden guys wanted to kind of get back into their dad's closet um and and find that old kind of dusty thing and, and make it cool and relevant today fast forward you're you're still in kind of a renaissance of menswear but it's really kind of shifted to this more street culture um vibe whether it's you know the sneaker heads now so where it used to be the, what is the the cool shoe or their most authentic shoe now it's more about what is the hottest sneaker um or the hottest you know new era cap it's it's really um you know changed you know obviously the i think some of the pieces have changed some of the pieces have stayed the same like the overcoat is is still king in my opinion um but it's oversized I, I still think you know men are discovering apparel and and enjoying clothes i know i started in the industry 30 plus years ago and fashion was always a four-letter word for most men and i think probably 15 years ago during the j crew moment it started becoming a lot more acceptable to be into to fashion and, and if anything I think it's even accelerated in the last uh, two to three years because you know everything from uh, Amelia Dory to Kith to you know you name it it's just really kind of made guys that much more interested in how they look and you work for a couple of really strong visionary leaders you know, Mickey Drexler and Ralph Lauren, what did you learn from them that you took into your business when you launched it? That for me was such a, a key moment in my career. I mean, working for Mickey, um, there's nobody like him, the way he looks at business, uh, right. the way he uh, executes and um, his vision. I mean, he, I think he gets enough credit for his taste level. Um, that's really what makes him incredible i mean is that he's got incredible taste i re was remembering probably a year ago and you know we, we were doing or we are doing our own catalog and which does really well for us and i remember showing it to him at lunch and he's sure enough still picking the number one stop and you know i still remember sitting in um you know line reviews with him and his real genius is able to pick that style but then he goes big on it and he and he he doesn't bet the farm, but he does it in 
and it it changes the course of the business enough that you you really respect kind of that vision and the guts that he has to you know invest in something that he doesn't have any history on he just has a gut feeling that that is a killer style we should go big on that and you know for me i i took that and um have always respected that but also knowing he comes from a business background and again just making sure that i surround myself with with great people and in my head uh merchant um he runs more than merchandising now, but he came from J crew as well. He was running men's. Right. Uh, and you know, I needed to have that balance and Mickey would always call it the creative conflict between merchandising and design. And it's truly needed. You need someone who understands the financials and the investments, but then you need a visionary thinking about what's, what's ahead. And, and Mickey really kind of taught me all that. And when you officially launched in 2011, you didn't set out to be a digital brand. You started out by selling wholesale. And you said before at Bergdorf and Barney's, Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom, really great launching pads for an independent designer. So when did you realize that you needed to shift your business model to more direct to consumer in order to grow and thrive? I think it was the first year when we launched our website, um, which was, I think, 2012, if I'm not mistaken we we started in 2011 and a year after we launched it and quickly um i mean the site did you know 300,000 that year and that was huge for us because you know we were all wholesale and that was our biggest account all of a sudden was our own channel that's when i knew like whew, this is actually really really something and we should definitely keep our eye on it and I just kept reinvesting and reinvesting in that channel, um, you know, hiring the right people, you know, at the time, you know, watching a lot of these direct consumer brands like the Bonobuses of the world. And they definitely were early to the, to the game and were ahead of the curve. And I really just became obsessed with understanding how they did what they did. You know, you saw it with Warby Parker, you saw it with, you know, all of Everlane and Dollar Shave yeah. Club. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, that was really interesting to me. I really, I, well, I wanted to understand it. So I, I continually, um, you know, I would go to seminars, I would always be reading online, I would always be asking questions of friends and really just wanted to unlock that uh, knowledge. And for your brand, did you see any white space that these Everlanes and Warby Parkers weren't addressing that you feel that, you know, you could address? Yeah, I mean, I saw tons of, of white space. I, you know, for me, you know, I always kind of equate buying clothes, you know, similarly to going to a great restaurant. You know, you want to know that that chef started off at another restaurant in the kitchen, you know, washing, you know, cutting vegetables, being a sous chef and working their way up. And I feel the same way about buying clothes. And I always felt um, even though that there was a lot of these brands that were, you know, first, um, to the game in, in this new digital era in retail, I knew that they didn't have the, um, you know, kind of the experience I had and, um, the ability to design great clothes. So I knew I had an advantage and I knew that that might be a trend that everybody is, jumping on like, oh, there's this new 
if someone reinvented an Oxford shirt or someone made a new pant, you know, it became all of a sudden where you had a someone who studied business all of a sudden saying, hey, I, I invented a, a shirt mm-hmm. that you can untuck. That to me seemed a little bit of a gimmick. And I knew that there was opportunity um, in a and, and in a brand that had staying power, um, you know, working at Ralph. I think the one thing I, I appreciated about being there, um, I was there for about a total of three years, but still um, having the appreciation for design and, and heritage and kind of all the things that go into it. It's a real art. It's really hard to attain that knowledge. And I obviously working there and working in the industry, I knew um, and anticipated the customer was going to, you know, shift at some point. And, you know, not that we have every customer, but I do think there's white space uh, for well-designed product that is direct to consumer and is done, you know, sold in a different channel, you know, uh, whether it's our stores, whether it's online, whether it's through a catalog, I knew that we have to make it easy for the customer to buy and not make it difficult. Um, so that was kind of probably in 2015, really kind of set the course to um, go in that direction. Like several of those high profile digital first brands you were just talking about, you know, you made a huge leap when you decided to expand your presence to the traditional brick and mortar space to reach more customers in the physical world. And you opened up your first ever US boutique in New York City in 2016. So how did you think about mirroring the same Todd Snyder brand experience already created online to the offline location? It's a really critical point, I think, with every moment that the customer discovers you is, to me, one of the most covetable times in a brand, meaning if you think about everything you love, whether it's a great restaurant, whether it's a movie, whether it's a book, whether it's a band you love, you usually find out about it through a friend and, mm-hmm. or you discovering it yourself. And I think that is what the store allows. It allows this sense of discovery where somebody comes in, you don't have to say a whole lot. You just walk in and understand immediately what the brand's about. I don't have to put words on a page. I don't have to create a video. I don't have to, um, you know, it it touches all senses, you know, whether it's the music, whether it's the smell, whether it's the staff that's there saying hello and greeting you, you don't really get that um, online. So I, I think it's important to always have that touch point. I don't think it's everything. I don't think it's, I think it's shifted. I don't think it's ever going to go away. I just think how people shop obviously in the last 10 years has shifted to, you know, people are more comfortable buying um, things online and it's, it's easier and convenience is certainly, uh, there's a a value to that, but at the same time, people do enjoy shopping and they do enjoy talking to someone one-on-one, believe it or not. And um, for me, it was always just very important to have that discovery point and the store really allows that to happen. Plus it also gives existing customers a place to either try things on return. Um, it just is more of an ease, um, more so as a transaction. It's really much more of a, a community builder and making sure that the customer feels and understands who the brand is, but also having that, that touch point of 
you know, whether it is customer service or trying things on. Yeah. And how much of your business is e-commerce now? Um, it's majority. I mean, I would probably, you know, it's probably 80% um, direct cons- or online and then the rest is uh, stores. And yeah, we don't and do speak- wholesale anymore. And speaking of e-commerce, you know, the pandemic has been called fashion's biggest reset and for good reason. <laughs> You know, it's proven that e-commerce isn't just a privilege that brands choose whether to participate in. So with your shift to this D2C model pre-pandemic, I imagine your business was well positioned to navigate a world of closed brick and mortar. What actions did you take anyway to keep the brand relevant and top of mind when the pandemic hit? Yeah, I mean, the beginning of the pandemic was certainly challenging. I mean, honestly, I think all of us had the same shock of like, what's going to happen? We didn't really think we would still be around or I didn't think we'd still be around. Um, but fortunately we are. And we quickly saw a shift to, you know, our jogger and our sweatpant and our kind of our champion collection. That really was a godsend for us because we had plenty of it probably six months prior to it, you know, unbeknownst to us knowing that this was happening, we made a commitment to each other saying, you know, we're never going to be out of stock of champion because we kept selling it well, but there was delays on, on shipments and all this, this was obviously pre pandemic. So we said, let's just buy a year supply. And um, that was the best thing we ever did. And because we had that, it got us through the pandemic or at least the beginning stages of it. Um, And we were selling, probably four times the amount of joggers than we ever had. Um, it's just our, our classic sweatpants from champion and same thing with our hoodie, same thing with our, um, pocket sweatshirt that we do with them as well. Those were the things that really kind of became the tried and two pieces that really at least built a foundation for our business. So what's trending now, now that people are starting to inch out of their homes and. Well, it's interesting. I think because of the pandemic, I think guys, there was definitely, I think in fashion, there's a, I always look at fashion in curves, meaning like there's always a early adopter, um, you know, that's not a big part of the population. And then as the trend kind of gets bigger, obviously you get more and more adopters uh, before a trend finally burns and fades out. But I think during the pandemic, you really saw an acceleration of these kind of casual pants that were a cross between a jogger and a dress pant. And now all of a sudden guys are very much into these. So our, one of our bigger selling items, which we call the traveler is a drawstring uh, pleated. Uh, it has a cuff to it, like a turn back cuff of about an inch and a half. And it's a great hybrid between a dress pant and a jogger. And that's become one of our best selling styles. And I definitely attribute that to the pandemic because before we always had it, but it was always kind of like, nah, do I want to wear that? I don't think the average guy really understood how to wear it, but I think the pandemic trained a lot of guys and, and made that curve happen a little quicker where you got a lot more people into it. So that's one, but also we're seeing guys, you know, definitely there's built up demand in getting married and occasions and tuxedos. And, and so we're seeing kind of a return to that. Um, and we're also seeing kind of a return to just your stereotypical menswear, meaning like the jean and the suit and, you know, kind of the normal, normal fare. I think a lot of men have been 
you know, speaking of pent up demand, but from right. a fashion standpoint, is just like, okay, I'm ready to move on to the next. What do you think of the future of the suit is? I, I still think it's, it's bright. I don't think the suit's ever going to go out of style. It's, it's, you know, for men, it, it's not going to be, and it hasn't been what it was back in the eighties when guys had to wear suits to work. It's definitely, you know, much more of a, a casual style, but there's always um, the opportunity to wear a suit, whether it's to a wedding, to your first job interview. Um, it is still the ultimate um, sign of respect, in my opinion, to, to wear a suit, um, whether it is to an office or, you know, somebody's, um, you know, gathering you know, maybe not styled the way you would stereotypically think with a tie and all that, but you're starting to see a lot of guys wearing a polo underneath, mm -hmm. underneath or a t-shirt. So the rules are changing. I, I don't think it, it's, it's ever going to be out. I do see a return to it just because I think there is a lot of people that are like, okay, enough of my sweatpants. Well, you're going to open the sixth permanent location in uh, the retail store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in April, right? Is that still slated for April? Yeah, yeah, right now it is. Um, that's the other thing the pandemic has, has caused is a lot of disruption in supply chain. So that's that's the latest. Yeah, and this follows a store in Rockefeller Center, which um, I had the privilege of checking out the uh, the opening. So tell us about the new Williamsburg Boutique. Yeah, so the, our Williamsburg, um, as you said, opens in, in April, uh, fingers crossed. We're... You know, as I said before, you know, the stores are really a, an important piece to kind of the whole equation of um, making sure that we have that customer service level um, at its peak. And we have a ton of customers in Brooklyn, and we've had a ton of customers in Brooklyn since we opened. And stereotypically, when you open up a store, you see a halo from that store happen, meaning like you have existing customers and then you acquire new customers because all of a sudden a friend says, hey, you got to check this thing out or you got to go, you know, a wife goes in or um, a significant other goes in and discovers the place for a customer. And that's always needed. And, and Williamsburg has always been at the epicenter of menswear. Um probably in the last 10, 15 years plus, where you have a lot of, you know, we see it in our data, you know, seeing where guys are buying. Mm -hmm. So that's how we plan to open stores. So we know that we'll at least get those customers in, but then we will create a halo where you get like, you know, two to three times that. Um, and it's just a good market for us. And it's definitely something that I'm, I'm super excited by. Are you designing it to have the same sort of feel, a Brooklyn feel to it? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a different animal than our flagship um, on Madison. Madison has a barbershop and it has a cafe. Right. And this this will just be strictly retail, but it has, it's an open space. So it's um, it almost looks like, a, I think it was an old factory actually. Um, so we just, you know, left the, ceilings exposed and added our fixtures inside but it'll have a very kind of brooklyn aesthetic um you know we're we're gonna have our not only our um our suiting will be there but we'll have a milliner shop there that we're doing with new era um and then we'll have some you know selections of our mascots uh there as well so we're we're bringing definitely some of the assortment um 
some of the discovery there. Um, but it's really kind of meant to be this, you know, an annex in a way of what you see here in the city. And your store is catered to a whole lifestyle, providing clothing and shoes and accessories and art and design pieces, you know, very experiential with a local neighborhood feel to them. Have you rethought the purpose of your stores and what the in-store experience should be like these days? Well, I think it's always been the same. It's really customer first and, and I always love it when friends or even people who discover the store, the first thing out of the mouth is I love your store and your staff is amazing. That for me crushes everything because that's exactly what I want to hear is that the staff is amazing. That's what we open stores for is to get that human connection. And it's always been the top priority. You know, we offer uh, tailoring on site um, and this store actually will have a tailor on site. And, you know, it's a super important part of the experience for a customer because you want them to feel that this was made for them or fit them the best um, that it can because it's really important. You can't, some people aren't just off the rack customers. It's really important to have that personalized experience for each customer. And the tailor really allows us to, you know, we've made, you know, suits for women. Um, we've adjusted things for, you know, all, all different sizes we do made to measure in suiting, but we actually do it in our suede Dillon jacket. We really try to make it as inclusive as possible, you know, with the amount of SKUs that we have um, and giving, you know, having that tailor really gives us that opportunity to, to make it as, as, you know, personalized as we can. You've become sort of the master of savvy collaborations. You've collaborated with countless American heritage brands like Champion, New Balance, Timex, LL Bean, and Clark's, just to name a few. I don't know, you average like two to five collaborations per year. And what is it, about 50% of your business now? Um, I don't know if it's quite 50%. Um, you know, Champion is a big piece of it. It's it's a big percentage, I'll say that. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's definitely a, a big piece of what we do. Yeah, and you were doing collaborations with heritage brands when you were at GQ. Is that where you really first caught the collab bug? Yeah, that was, it, I, it was me working with Mickey and it, the first one we ever did was actually Jack Purcell. We, we did a sneaker with them and um, we called it our broken and Chino sneaker, which was like our best-selling pant mm -hmm. and um, it blew out. It just did so well. And then our second one was Red Wing and Red Wing um, I still remember the numbers. I, I remember the the merchant who I kind of um, talked into buying it because at first they were kind of a little anti because it, it's hard to do collaboration because yeah. if you're not used to buying wholesale, it's really challenging. It's different systems. It's, it's not great margin either. And, um, you know, so we did 300 units of our first Red Wing boot and it blew out. Like we sold out of it in like the first week. It was in our catalog and men's. And I remember the merchant called me the next week and said, Todd, I need 3000 units by December. Can you make it happen? Yeah. Called up the president of Red Wing and said, what can you do? And luckily they're, you know, we're made in the U S so they were able to 
move some things around and we're able to get us 3000 pairs. So that kind of became, after that, I remember getting a call from Mickey and, and he literally called me up into his office and said, what else do you have? <laughs> and then it was off to the races. And then it was like, we put a whole list together, uh, me and my design team and him, we kind of listed out like, what are the, what are the brands that we want to partner with like this? And, and Timex was at the top of the list um, and Alden and, and so on and so forth. So that's really was the beginning stages of it. Um, I had always admired uh, collaborations just because I used to travel a lot to Japan. And, um, you know, Comte Garçon, in my opinion, invented it. I think the Japanese really kind of perfected it. And um, I always liked that idea of, you know, working creatively with another creative company to, you know, make something new. These days with, with the mashup of brands, you know, one brand usually brings the social and cultural capital to the other brand. What, what social and cultural capital does Todd Snyder bring to the brands that you mash up with? Well, I think the, you know, the social piece of it, I, I would say today is obviously different than it was eight years ago. Um, it, took, it took me a lot to talk people into doing this um, eight years ago. I think the, the biggest thing is really the, um, the audience changes. Um, and I've, I use this kind of sales pitch when I talk to brands is, it's really hard to talk about yourself. Meaning if you're an L.O. Bean, who's going to listen to L.O. Bean and say, we're cool, we're relevant, we're, you know, um, you know, come by us. You know, right. that doesn't happen. It's really hard to talk about yourself that way. It's much easier for someone from the outside to tell that story and to make something relevant. And, you know, almost like a curator at a museum you know, a lot of the stuff is known, it's there. It's really the curator's job to pluck out interesting things that may have over, been overlooked in the past or a different museum didn't talk about. Really, my job is, is that of a curator, of going into their archives and, you know, finding things that I think are interesting and are relevant for today's customer. And they're going to make the, the hype beasts of the world interested. That's really the the collateral I bring. Um, you know, we have a, a fairly big following online. We have a fairly big following um, on Instagram. And, you know, our channel, you know, we ship out probably close to half a million catalogs per um, drop. You know, we reach a lot of people, you know, you know, you think about the old days of GQ, as you said, yeah, you know, they were a million and a half back in its height, you know, we're sending out, you know, half a million to a very targeted audience that, you know, really um, appreciates what we're doing. So we're able to activate customers quickly. Um, plus, then our surrounding, you know, whether it is the hype beast or what have you, even the GQs and the Esquires today, really help amplify what we're, what we're talking about. But it's really, you know, kind of that is kind of our um, collateral that we bring to the table is being able to tell the story and really do something interesting that the customer is going to engage with. Do you think the compressed trend cycles and the need to constantly be in someone's social media feed influence the number of collaborations you do? Um, yeah, probably. Um, I don't think any of us ever want to admit to that, but I do think there's a lot of appetite out there for new and um, whatever 
whatever is the hottest thing, you know, StockX has been a, a really good vehicle, I think, for everybody that mm-hmm. acts as a little bit of a barometer, but it also is a great, um, great way to resell. I mean, this whole resale market, I think, has has done more to really kind of collapse uh, things because you you see kind of these spikes in sales that you end up selling a lot, but they end up going to a secondary market. It's a, it's a really interesting way to 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 think about um, trends and seeing um, things come and go. I don't think they go as fast. They definitely sell faster, but I think you see um, continuation of of sales that you know goes to a second or third uh, market. And these days, the question that is currently keeping luxury execs up at night is who they should collaborate with next. You know, the purpose of collaborations has become a fundamental part in the marketing strategies of brands. Anyone without them is already behind. With everyone doing collabs, will consumers sort of become collabed out? I don't think so. I mean, I think that's that's the trick. I mean, if you're just doing a collab to do a collab, then you've already failed. Um, if you're doing something that that creates interest, that's the goal of it is to create product that, you know, I've been in the industry 30 years. I don't think I'll ever, you know, create a sneaker line. Um, I'm never going to create a work boot. I'd much rather work with a brand that has that heritage, that has that authenticity. And that's the big reason why I work with brands like um, L.O. Bean, like Champion. You know, Champion invented the sweatshirt. You know, Timex invented the wristwatch. Um, that's a great story in itself that um, a lot of brands would give the right arm to have um, that much heritage. And that's exciting for me. So as long as the product that you're producing is relevant and interesting, I think collaborations will always continue. I think some brands just doing a collaboration that have, you know, at the end of the day, if customer doesn't like it, then it's a fail. Um, People want new, they want interesting. And sometimes it's better to do it together with some, you know, two people that are two brands that are, are different. And I think there's always going to be interesting mashups. Um, I know when we did the L.O. Bean, I still get so many people that are just blown away that the fact that we were able to do that. And I didn't know at the time that we were the only people they've ever worked with um, in their entire history. I had no clue. So that was kind of exciting. Um, But yeah, those those are the things. And there's a lot of brands out there I still would love to work with. Um, And we just take them, you know, month by month. Um, and sometimes they happen all at once. And sometimes, you know, we go on a dry spell. It's, it's really, if it makes sense, me as a brand, you know, L. Bean certainly was that, you know, because we hadn't told that outdoors story. And, you know, L. Bean just is, you know, such an amazing brand, but it has so much heritage that it was a great opportunity for me to tell a different chapter. I'm, obviously, I've done Champion, um, which is more sport and more kind of athletic department inspired. I'm not going to then go do something with Russell, for example. That right. to me, that story has been told. But there's plenty of other um, stories and, and different brands that I'd still like to work with. 
American Eagle acquired Todd Snyder in 2015. How has that deal helped position and grow the Todd Snyder brand so far? It's been huge. Um, I owe so much of my success to their belief in what we've been able to accomplish. I didn't realize how expensive it was going to be to start my own collection. And I remember when I left J. Crew, Mickey was like, you're nuts. Why are you leaving? And he said it to me. He's like, you're going to have to write big checks. And I was like, ah, I'll be fine. And I thought <laughs> I was off to the races. I'm like, I'm at Bergdorf's. And I got into Barney's and I got into Nordstrom. And I thought, wow, this is great. But then I started seeing, you know, having the capital um, to be able, even though you have orders, to be able to go to factories and say, hey, produce this. You know, your kind of good guy credit only good takes you so far and you need credit to be able to place bigger orders. So the bigger we got, the more challenging it became to scale. And, you know, certainly with retail stores, it's really cash intensive and that I couldn't have done without American Eagle. I mean, just their credit alone, we don't have to put any guarantees down. Um, if you're an independent designer saying, Hey, I want to open this store they're going to have you give a first year uh, rent the whole year, uh, give them cash for that, and they'll hold it as security in case you default. So as you can imagine, especially in New York City, that's that's a big check and it's more money than you know I ever had. So that in that regard, it's been amazing. But the, the bigger piece of it is just the experience that they have and the knowledge they have. I was able to really you know, understand how to run a business, how to, you know, look at a PL in a way that um, was different than what I knew. I mean, I grew up as a designer, uh, you know, so I owe a lot to them, not only just for the financial backing, but also the knowledge uh, gained and also the, you know, expertise that they have in logistics and, you know, try imagining trying to get all your product on containers and get it here to the United States and, you know, not lose your butt at doing it too. So that, that for me has been a huge, uh, you know, great learnings, but also great opportunity for me to have them uh, at my back. Yeah. And you grew up in the seventies and eighties. How has it influenced your designs and your vision of menswear? It's huge. I mean, when I, um, when I worked at Ralph, you know, before I worked at Ralph, I looked at, menswear very differently it was very much a you know trying to reinvent the wheel you know to a degree like you come out of design school and you think oh gosh i'm you know i have to create something new and original and and fresh and that that's certainly the case every season but when i worked at ralph that's when all of a sudden i realized oh my gosh there's this everything always went back to some piece in history whether it was the 50s or the 70s or the 80s there's always um you know no matter what i mean if you look at menswear today if you even look at women's wear today you can always point to and you always hear people talking about oh that's the 80s the 80s is in or oh that's the 90s or that's the the 90s know, seems see, to be in these days the 90s are in these days and i would say that americana is very in these days it's really interesting if you look at you know Paris Runway or even, you know, Milan, there's so much reference on uh, American style. And I think uh, Demna did a great job um, when, when he kind of 
had a fresh take on uh, fashion, but a lot of what he was referencing were, you know, classic. It was almost like he went through an old vintage shop and and um, kind of reintroduced all these great, you know, American styles. Um, the oversized, you know, sweatshirt to the um, the the bleached out denim, the acid wash denim. You know, he really reintroduced things in a neat way, and you see his influence continuing. And, you know, those are the things that I really started to think about and having that experience and that knowledge of seeing trends come and go has, again, been a, a big reason uh, I think I'm successful is just because I'm able to kind of see, oh, wait, I remember in the 80s when this was a big style. And but it's always reinvented slightly. There's always a twist to it. It isn't just right. a carbon copy. It's a slight you know, twist on the, a classic. So it's, it was really good for me to work at Ralph and to be able to see and open up that, that whole treasure trove of, you know, these classics. And we used to travel to the Rose Bowl every month. And we used to go to, you know, before vintage was cool, Ralph made it cool, double RL. He used to have, or still does, has warehouse full of vintage apparel that they use for references you know whether it's an old leather jacket an old military um, pant um, what have you I think there's always something to be discovered and every time I go to a, a vintage store I'm still you know, when I think I see everything there's oh my gosh this is such a great piece that we have to re reinterpret it and your brand caters to what you call the modern gentleman what is the modern gentleman these days well, the modern, I mean, it changes, it evolves. Um, I think the biggest thing and, and the reason why we always say the modern gentleman is, I mean, it's gentleman first, meaning you still need to have manners. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's really important. I mean, my dad always taught me, you know, to open doors and, you know, even in New York City, I still do. Um, even though you probably let in like 30 people by the time you actually get in the door. <laughs> Um, but, um, it's really important to still have that and that sense of, um, you know, being kind and being graceful. I think it's really important, but the modern gentleman is just somebody who's current and somebody who, um, you don't need to be, you know, the cutting edge of fashion. You don't need to be the cutting edge of music, but just somebody who's current and somebody who's, um, takes themselves seriously um, but not too serious to where they're stuffy or, you know, overbearing. I think it's really important to always have a, a casual, uh, approach to style and, and to things, but the, really the modern gentleman is somebody who's, you know, comfortable in their own skin, has confidence, has manners, and, and um, isn't afraid to, to take risks. So my final question, Todd, is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests, and I've been very excited to ask you this particular question. If you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one luxury item with you, what luxury item would that be? It can't be any form of air transportation, water transportation, or anything that requires mobile service. It's just you, a lot of sand, a few palm trees surrounded completely by miles and miles of ocean, what would that one luxury item you would like to have with you? Uh, that's a tough question. Jeez. Um, uh, you know, aside from my family, <laughs> <it was just laughs> me. Um, 
I would probably say, um, you know, a bottle, a, a very large bottle of Casa Azul uh, Reposado tequila. Hmm. Um, Sipping it, I hope. Get, Sipping it, yes, I, I would have to last me a long time. I don't, you, you didn't give a time frame on it. So no time frame. I'm, I'm assuming it's hopefully for a short period of time. But <laughs> if, if I had one thing, it would probably be that. I always like myself a, a Plaza Azul. It's, um, I discovered it probably a friend of mine introduced me to it probably five years ago, and I've been obsessed with it ever since. Fashion designer and entrepreneur Todd Snyder, thank you so much for joining me on the luxury item. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, Scott. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.